I would tell that to anybody who's stuck at any age, even if they're not stuck. You know, take a look around. You have an idea, you want to express it. Is what you're doing now, is that the best way to express that idea that you have? Hello, all my lovely creative chameleons out there. Thank you for joining me today on the Sage Arts Podcast. I'm Sage, your host for this really fun conversation today. I'm going to skip my usual preamble since you'll, strangely enough, hear plenty of me in the interview because my guest got a little tricksy with me towards the end, which is kind of apropos for the conversation, but you'll see what I'm talking about. So we'll dispense with the drinks commentary and the weather, which has been pretty indecisive anyways today and all that other nonsense. But you can still come in metaphorically to listen in on the conversation. I'm in my podcast studio slash closet just over the mountains from Malibu in Southern California. And my guest is on the complete other opposite corner of the country on the northeastern coast. So you can fill the spaces in between or to the side or whatever, and just enjoy a little audio voyeurism on this conversation today. I don't want to skip the shout outs, though. This week, I got so many comments on the Perfection episode. It seemed to really strike a deep or maybe a big chord for a lot of people. I was even getting like third hand comments from some animation people my husband talked to who are apparently listening. So to all of you, thank you so much for listening and for giving Brett the feedback, which, of course, works its way back to me. And I appreciate all the input. Also, a shout out to Linda Brooks, who sent me a number of comments amidst this story of hers. She did admit that she has a kind of arrogance is the word she used. And I think we all do this. We're sometimes where we think we've just heard it all. We know everything, especially when it comes to art and creativity. But on the perfectionism episode, she just thought it hit so many insightful points for her. And I think that's a great thing to be reminded of that although we feel like we may know it all, there's always more to learn. And if not learn necessarily to be reminded of or to see things with a kind of new twist on it that allows us to see things in a new and inspiring light. And so here's her story. Basically, she used to be super obsessive about getting everything perfect. And in her jewelry art, she would polish the backs and the edges to a ridiculous degree. Not only was it taking a lot of time and hurting her hands in her back, she wasn't having fun. And if it wasn't perfect, it ended up in her personal stash, which means she has a very large personal collection because if it wasn't absolutely perfect, it wasn't going to go out and be sold. So what worked for her was she started looking at the artisan jewelry of other makers at craft events and whatnot. And she'd look at it up close and see whether the so-called imperfections were anything that she cared about. And she realized that the little minor dings or whatever wouldn't take away from the aesthetics or the comfort of the piece, and it certainly didn't stop her from spending the money. So that was a real aha moment for her, and she was able to then place herself in a customer mindset when she was selling her own work. She was also looking to friends and family to give them feedback on whether the things that seemed imperfect to her were things that would have kept them from buying things. So. She's definitely learning that imperfection doesn't necessarily get in the way of the aesthetics, the function, or the comfort, and she says she's learning to live with it. Well, I hope that what I had to say helps you learn to so-called live with it and that it will get more and more comfortable for you. But thank you, Linda, so much for the comments. I'm glad you enjoyed that and got so much insight from that episode. I also want to give a thank you to Coral Stengel, who I think I shouted out before, but whenever someone makes a big contribution to my coffee budget, I have to say thank you on here. So 
Thank you, Coral, for contributing. She says she really appreciates me, which is so sweet. But no, I really appreciate you, all of you, you know. But yes, I do have kind of a special place in my muse's heart for the givers and the storytellers. So thank you so much, Coral and Linda. I have more comments and stories that I'll try to work in next week. So if you didn't hear yours or haven't been able to answer your emails or comments yet, I'll try to find time and space for you in the podcast. But regardless, I will write you all back. It's just been a super full week for me. If you have a story, a comment, an observation, or whatever, or you want to give back, go to the website at thesagearts.com. You can head to the contact page to send comments. You can stay on the homepage if you're able to give back. Just scroll down to the Buy Me a Coffee or PayPal donation buttons or use the links to go buy stickers or publications. All of that helps keep me going. And do hit the follow button if you're listening on a podcast player so you know when new episodes are live and I know who's all listening. You can also sign up for the newsletter. I send it out on Sunday mornings, like 3 a.m. my time. Not that I'm up sending it out. I have a scheduler that sends it out. But it's like when you're waking up on the East Coast or it's probably lunchtime in Europe or around dinnertime or after dinnertime in Australia. So sometime on Sunday, you'd get this email and it gives you the lowdown on the episode and the link if you prefer to access the podcast through the browser feed hub that I have. And that's also where I'll include any extra materials I promise in an episode. I'll also include extras and that browser link in my posts on Instagram and Facebook. Both those pages can be found on those social media platforms under the Sage Arts Podcast, all one word follow and you'll get to see also extra postings I add to complement the present episode that I've put out. So that all said, let's just bracket the upcoming conversation with the thoughts that you might want to keep in mind as you listen so you can get the most out of it. We're going to be talking about change, the kind of changes that we go through as an artist. So if you have some changes that you've been contemplating, changes that you're going through, changes that you know are coming up due to life circumstances, age, moving, whatever, Think about what those mean to you and what those could mean for changes in your artwork. So I guess the question to keep in mind is, are there changes that are coming up and have you spent the time to contemplate what that means for your artwork and if those changes are going to affect you, how you need to plan or prepare for them? So without further ado, let's get on to the conversation. Okay, my guest today is Joseph Barbaccia. He is an artist illustrator who works primarily in polymer clay these days. So thank you so much for joining me, Joseph. Sage, it's it's really a pleasure being here. I've relished the opportunity to talk with you and to answer any questions you might have. I love that you relish it. <laughs> <That's great. laughs> me <do>. too. <laughs> That's great. So let's get a little background on you. Like you and I met, you actually reached out to me when I was working on the Polymer Arts magazine about oh, yes. your new method of illustrating, basically. You illustrate with Polymer Clay. The type of work that he does, and maybe you can explain it better than me, he uses strings of Polymer Clay, but it's just very dramatic. There's lots of movement and line in there. And it's just really, really beautiful work. And for those of you who aren't familiar with his work or want visuals to kind of go along with the conversation, I would suggest going to his website at paradisestudio.com. So that's P-A-R-A-D-I-S-E studio.com. So Joseph, let's start with what you're doing right now for your art. Well, right now I'm preparing for a solo show uh, at a local gallery, uh, an organization here in Rehoboth Beach in Delaware. It'll be about 20 pieces, and uh, I'm just finishing up some last-minute pieces, postcards, and exhibition catalogs. Oh, great. So that's kind of what I'm working on right now. 
and the exhibition is for your polymer illustration work? Uh, yes, it's all polymer clay, so it's kind of pure in that aspect. Yeah, yeah, but it you is. Never, you, you never know, that may change. Right, right, and that's what we're going to talk about, <laughs> is how things might change <laughs> and how things have changed for you. So, so yeah, you live in Delaware, and I think you mentioned that you're rather isolated. Oh, yes, I live in Sussex County in Delaware, and other than Lewis and Rehoboth Beach, which are summer vacation destinations. The county is the smallest in population in Delaware, and it's very rural. Uh There's a lot of chicken farms and regular farms, you know. Just farming, uh, farming, yeah. Yep. I like how it's the smallest in Delaware, considering how small Delaware is. (laughs) Yes. Got to be really tiny. (laughs) It is. Did you find the isolation to be, you know, does it work well for your artwork and your concentration? In some ways, yes. I never really had too many problems concentrating on my work, but that's only because I have a short attention span in general. (laughs) But we can talk about that later, too. There is difficulty if I wish to contact galleries. There are a few galleries, but most of the galleries in the area are geared to tourists. Yeah, of course. And my work isn't necessarily geared to tourists. Yeah. I've started to become a little more familiar with the galleries, say, in Wilmington, which is, you know, the largest city in Delaware. And I do have some galleries that I dealt with in the Washington, D.C. area that I'm still in contact with. But normally when an artist wants to see and wants to be associated with a gallery, there's a lot of visits to openings and, you know, talking with the owners or uh, with the staff. So it's a little more difficult. It's a two-hour drive for me to do something like that. Oh, yeah, yeah. Now, you're technically retired from your previous main career. Yes, for the past five years. Yeah. But you've not retired and just gone on and, and you know, sit around eating bonbons and watching TV or whatnot. You started there's, another there's, <laughs> Wait. There's he, times for he that. Hesitated. <laughs> there's, time, there's times for that. But right. normally, you're right. Uh, I continue to do my artwork. Yeah. When I was working full time, that was always something in my mind that I wanted to keep on doing. Yeah. It was the same with my graphics when I lived in Northern Virginia. Right. And your and your previous profession was primarily in graphic design? Graphic design and illustration. Yeah. yeah. So still illustration. Uh, yeah. I call it informational illustration. Informational illustration. Okay. So, so you just kind of transferred a lot of that illustrative knowledge and mindset into your artwork that you do today. Well, yeah, somewhat. I still use the computer to work on the pieces that I do now in clay. And I still pretty much have that nine to five work ethic. Yeah. That I, you know, that 40 plus years of, of nine to five will do for you. <laughs> right. It's hard to get away from that structure and feel like you're being productive, right? <laughs> well, I, I don't mind it. Yeah. As long as my health continues, yeah. I'm fine with it. I right. love what I do. That's great. So yes, you've retired. You have your artwork that you're doing now. Let's just get to know you a little better. Just a couple silly questions and stuff like that. For instance, if someone wrote a biography about you today, what would it be titled? 
Veni Vidi Vici. <laughs> it's going to be titled Italian. Okay, that's all I got. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, la- it's Latin, actually. It pertains to Julius Caesar. It means he came, he saw, he conquered. Oh, yes. Um, right. <laughs> or I came, I saw, I conquered. I conquered, yeah. and you're still conquering. So. <laughs> um, hitting it. Yeah, you're doing it. Got. You're doing it. That's great. I love it. All right. And then the planner or pantser question I always ask. Do you like to plan things, or do you just fly by the seat of your pants or do something kind of in between i'm i'm a planner because of the type of materials i've used Uh uh, and continue to use but as far as the images go the initial images there's not much thought to them Uh, they are more spontaneous if i see something along the side of the road i'll stop my car take a photograph of Uh it that interests me If I'm waking up in the morning and I get a visual in my head, it gets quickly sketched down. So the initial light bulb or the initial idea is not planned. I don't don't think to myself, I'm going to do a picture of a sunset or I'm going to do a political comment about relationship of China and the EU or whatever the case may be. So I don't say that to myself first. I have done it, but it's very rare. Yeah. So the initial, it is pantser. And then once I have the concept, then I start to say, what's the best materials to use Mm -hmm. to bring this concept or this image to fruition the best way I think it can be done? Right, right. And then I start the planning process. Right. And then you plan pretty much all the way through from that point, though. You sketch it. You work on your initial design in your computer, if I remember correctly. Yes. And then that goes on to, I don't know if you still do this, but when we talked back and I think it was 2014, you put your design on the back of glass? Yes. Do you still use those same Pyrex glass sheets that you were so excited yes. about buying back then? <laughs> yes. Except I purchased a regular kitchen-sized oven and yeah. I have that in my garage. So I did that in order to get larger single pieces of clay to get larger images done. Yeah. And so I had to buy new Pyrex glass in larger sizes. Because right. initially you're working with a toaster oven that I think you said it, it 12 inch by 12 inch, those little personal size pizzas fit in. <laughs> right? <laughs> right. And then I bought a larger toaster oven, uh-huh. uh, which allowed me, I think, 14 by 16. Oh, wow. And then I said to myself, this it's is just getting it's, silly. <laughs> it, it, well, for me, there's a high degree of difficulty in piecing the smaller pieces if I wanted to make a larger image. There's a high degree of difficulty in doing that and retaining continuity between the pieces that I try to integrate. Right. So bigger is better in bigger this case. Is better, yeah. And for those who, who don't work in polymer clay, it's kind of like modeling clay and then you lay it out and then you put it in an oven, like a regular oven, and you cure it and then it becomes a solid piece, basically. Yeah, having a big oven, that makes sense. So great. So yeah, a little planning, a little pantsing at the beginning. So let's go with my, actually my favorite fun question. What's your guilty pleasure food? It would be pasta. Pasta. Uh, Especially gnocchi. Gnocchi. Oh yeah, that's our daughter's favorite. (laughs) Oh yeah. Uh, I can't do too much of it. The other guilty pleasure I have is popcorn 
And popcorn isn't it's not that bad. Really yeah. bad for you? No, no. But in copious amounts, uh, you can get difficult. <laughs> it's hard just to eat a little popcorn, isn't oh, it? Oh, you can't oh do. It. You can't do. It. <laughs> I sometimes I try to make big batches so I could snack on it through the week, and it ends up being gone like that afternoon. <laughs> it's ridiculous popcorn. Yeah, I'm with you on that one. And then, it, do you have any really weird food that you've eaten? Yes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> He's all excited. Well, um, crickets. I've eaten mm. crickets. Are they the chocolate covered ones or just the fried and spiced ones? No, uh, fried and, and seasoned. Yeah. Yes. They were good. I liked them a lot. In fact, there's a company, I think it's called Cricket, that actually makes a flower out of crickets. Cricket and flour. Then, yeah. uh, mm-hmm, and then makes things like chips and snack foods out of the crickets. And they're pretty good too. Yeah, you could get the cricket chips and like feed them to your friends and then tell them later and then they're mad at you, but it'd be kind of funny. <laughs> well, that, that's exactly what I did with my daughters, too. I have three daughters, and I must admit I did that. Like how our minds um, go right to like, who can we trick with this food? We're bad. <laughs> Let's go back to the art stuff. Now, your artistic journey started when? When you were a kid? When you went to college? Uh, you know, kids always draw and create. I mean, it's a natural thing for, right. for human kids to do. And I was in love with my second grade teacher, and oh. it was Miss Phillips. <laughs> uh, she always encouraged the kids to draw and to paint. And since I was in love with her, well, I wanted to impress her. Uh-huh. And I did a lot of it. And she was such a nice person, a good <laughs> teacher. She, of course, rewarded me with that affirmation. Right. You know, you're doing a good job, Joey, and, you know, keep it up, blah, blah, blah. And the more attention I got, the more I liked to do it. It so happened that my parents liked what I was doing, too. And other relatives, you know, yeah. all the all the positive feedback. Yeah. And so I continued to do it until I started to get positive feedback for myself. I didn't need it for my teachers or my family. I just enjoyed doing it myself. And I kept going. That's great that you got so much support. Oh, yeah. yes. Yeah, I really appreciate my family for doing That's that. That's wonderful. And, uh, of course, my teachers. Yeah. So you went to college with the mindset that you were going to get an art degree? Yes, I was going to teach art. That was a more practical aspect of my thoughts at the time. And I went to Tyler School of Fine Art, which is part of Temple University at the time. So I attended Temple for two years, ran out of money. My scholarship ran out as well. And also I had some attitude problems about, <laughs> gee. <laughs> Young boys. <laughs> I mean, besides that, yeah. Um, gee, if I want to do art, I don't need anybody to teach right, me. Right. Uh, <laughs> I could do it myself. So I took a year off and continued to do my work, yeah. but, you know, didn't study. And then I went back to school at a uh, liberal arts school near the Jersey Shore called Stockton University. It was called Stockton State College then. And I took another year there and then felt the itch to travel. Oh, and so yeah. I left college then, started traveling around the United States. Yeah. What kind of artwork were you doing when you were in school? What was your focus? Did you have a focus? Um, not particularly. I love to work with oils. Then. Uh-huh. You know, traditional medium. I did some jewelry work, gold casting, silver casting. I liked printing a lot. Enjoyed sculpture as well. Yeah, which makes sense because that's something you ended up working on a lot later on. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 
But you traveled, and did that inspire you to work in art more or in anything particular? Yeah, I still worked, and I still carried my art supplies with me to Maryland and to Georgia and to Texas. And then after Texas, I took that six-month break from my art. I wasn't going to do it anymore. I just wanted to really? be there. and Yeah, and experience things. I gave away everything I owned. Okay. And bought a motorcycle, and went out to the Texas Panhandle, El Paso, and then up through the Rockies and down the California coast. It took me about two months to do that, just backpacking and camping wherever I was. And as I was doing that, as I was looking at everything, and the beautiful countryside, meeting people, uh, it did occur to me, you know, my mind keeps going back to making images. Although I wasn't creating anything, it was still there. Yeah. So once I landed in San Diego, got a job and got settled in, I started with oil paints again, started painting. Yeah. Now you've been through quite a number of iterations in your career. Did you go into graphic design kind of straight off and then you did your own artwork and that's what kept changing? Or did you have variations in your career before you landed in graphic arts? Well, I used graphic design and information design to pay the bills. Right. So I've always done that. And although my major in college wasn't in graphic design, I did have those classes. And I parlayed those classes, that information, uh, working with smaller companies. And so I built up my graphics portfolio as I traveled. And then I lived in New Zealand for a year and a half and got some jobs with publishing companies and Again, kept feeding my resume. And then once I got back to the United States, I fell in love, got married. I have three girls. Uh, and that was, you know, part of my responsibilities was to make all that work. Right. And art wasn't going to do it. And graphics sure did. Yeah. So that became your stable income. And then you always did artwork on the side, but it changed a lot, right? So what kind of different forms or materials did you go through in your life? Oh, goodness. <laughs> it's going to be a long list. Uh, just, <laughs> just, yeah, I, it was kind of very whimsical. I mean, I've used things from crayons and not drawing with the crayons, uh-huh. but using the actual crayons to develop pointillist images. Ah. I've used polystyrene and sequins. <laughs> together. I used uh, encaustic carved wooden images. I've also worked on the computer using painting applications. <laughs> yeah, you've had your hands in like all the art jars. <laughs> Visually, yes. I'm, I'm not a good dancer. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Seeing I do, not professionally by any means. Yeah. Uh, I also wrote poetry. And I've also self-published five different books. Oh, that's wonderful. Were, yeah. were those poems or art books? or? One of them is the first of a series of a trilogy. It was a novella, kind of based on my travels, but more mythological and more fantasy. And then uh, one of them, my wife had a children's literature class in college, and she wrote this book. Fast forward 30 years, we had rediscovered it, and she took it out and showed it to me. And I said, I'd love to do the illustrations on this. And I used polymer clay for the illustrations. Right. Is that book available? 
Yeah, it's on Amazon. Okay. All these books are available we'll, we'll on get Amazon. get the link it, and put it in the show notes because, yeah, some of okay. us need to get that. <laughs> okay. There's also uh, two other books that I did kind of for my grandson, Fantastic Flying Footwear and Fantastic Flying Footwear 2. Oh, my gosh, and, that's so fun. And then just recently, I self-published my exhibition catalog. Yeah. This is why I like you. <laughs> it's like me. Just just you do everything. You're like, oh, I could do that. <laughs> well, you know, there is detrimental idea about this scattershot yes. all over the yes. place instead of concentrating on this one thing. But I think life is short. Right. And if I'm interested in something, I'm going to investigate it. Let me ask you, so you went to college, you went on a journey, tried not to do art, had to do art, <laughs> started a career, started a family, you're doing art all the time, and then you retired, and then you started in something else, but how did you know where to go? I think it's a <laughs> question for a lot of people. Where do I go from well, here, you know? Well, we had a pretty big house in Northern Virginia, and we had to downsize, and so we settled on this area. And the house halved in size and square footage. Because of that, I wouldn't have the two-car garage size studio. So what I had to do was start thinking, well, you know, what materials am I going to use in an 11 by 11 room? And it just so happens that my wife, who's very creative, she's an artist as well. At the time, she was working with polymer clay. So I started to experiment with polymer clay because I knew that I could work in a smaller size, but utilize the flexibility of what polymer clay could do, you know, both in three dimensions and two dimensions. So that downsizing fed me the idea to work with polymer clay. Yeah. Yeah. So it was a very practical thing. That got you into that new Mm -hmm. career. So, so yeah, so really life circumstances determined a lot of where you ended up. Yeah. Although I enjoy certain materials, I never married a material. Yeah. You know, I never wanted to stay with a material forever. It was always about the image that was preeminent, that was most important. Yeah. Now, here's the interesting thing, because polymer, like there's jewelry, there's sculpture, there's functional art, you know, bowls and home decor and that kind of thing. There's not a lot of illustration. How did you come upon the idea of doing illustrative work? And in particular, how did you come upon doing this snake, almost fibrous work with a clay material? Well, there wasn't anything being done like that. I said to myself, well, I have to be different. I have to be something in the marketplace that stands out. So I thought, oh, I could use polymer clay, but how the heck can I use it? So (laughs) I did some experimentations. And when I had bought the pasta machine, there were basically two ways to go. And that was flat or the spaghetti cut. Oh, uh, uh Or, you know, or the fettuccine cutter. Those attachments for the pasta machines, yeah. So I did that. And I've always admired the Impressionists and Mm Post-Impressionists. So instead of a brush stroke... What I did was, like you say, a, a snake of, of polymer clay. Yeah. And like the earlier Impressionists, they would use their brush strokes to denote the form. Right. And I would do the same thing with the spaghetti. Yeah. And then also optically using the solid colors and then having the viewer 
optically combine those colors right. to get form and other colors. And the gradations and all that. Yeah, yeah, yep. yeah. Oh, that's super interesting. Yeah, to think about the clay as an individual brush stroke. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and we'll have work of yours on Instagram and whatnot so people can see. And of course, they can follow your links to find all your stuff. But yeah, the stuff has so much movement because the clay does follow the form. They're very, very intentionally placed. Oh, yeah. Both in terms of the color combinations and the direction that they go in. It's a time-consuming way of doing art. Yeah, but it's be- it's just beautiful, the energy that comes off of that. And it's the same with the Impressionist work. And that's really interesting to note that that's where that kind of idea came from. Now that I've said that, you can see the oh, it, Impressionists and, you 100%. know, the early Impressionists in that work. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. It's very, very Impressionistic. And I hadn't really put that together. To me, it's very original work. And you just never stop exploring. No, no, that yeah. that's the that's the fun part. Isn't it? Yeah. That's I, like, I think, yeah. I always want to encourage people to explore and try something different, try something new. And it just really pushes you to consider all the possibilities and you find new avenues and it keeps things from getting boring as well, right? <laughs> right. And on the other side of that coin, it does incur a lot of curse words. <laughs> <laughs> and a lot of mistakes, in air quotes, and so-called failures. I hate the fact that we use the word failures, but things that don't work out the way we want them to. But that's such a huge part of being an artist and the exploratory aspect of it, I think, is so important. But you risk doing poor work <laughs> because well, you're figuring absolutely. it out. <laughs> right. In my case, it's okay if I fail because I know that I'm not going to stop doing it anymore. Right, right. So it, I have to make the choice of either, do you want to try that again or do you want to set it aside and go do something else? Right. So yeah, the whole thing about exploration, of course, is that it can be a little scary, but so was probably retirement and and what you got into. And apparently when we started talking about what we were going to discuss during this interview, you brought up a book, which I'm assuming you got into because of, you know, getting into you know our later years. You have very different thoughts about what you're doing, why you're doing it, what your plans are for the future. And so you brought up this book, Last Light. And so tell us about the book and why that was important to you as an artist. Well, the book was written by uh, Richard Lakeo. How do you spell that? L-A-C-A-Y-O. Okay. I don't know if that's how you pronounce it, but that's how you spell it. <laughs> Spelling's important um, on the audio, so <laughs> we'll go with yeah. that. <laughs> it's about how artists stay creative and innovative in their later life. Mm-hmm. There are six artists that he talks about in particular, and that is Titian, Goya, Monet, Matisse, Hopper, and Nevelson. Okay. It's really relevant to me right now because... And uh, I am now a septuagenarian. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> it happens to the best of us. Right. <laughs> the book gives me encouragement. Okay. Uh, you know, talking about these artists who worked into their 80s, 90s. It doesn't mention Picasso, but Picasso will be another artist who worked late in, into his 90s. Yeah. As well as other artists. The idea of the book is not only working late, but being relevant and innovative late in life. Right. So it's very relevant to me now. It gives me encouragement and hope. Even someone like Matisse, who was bedridden 
who's working out of his bed. Right. You know, yeah. with his cutout shapes and, uh-huh. and colors. I mean, he was responsible for designing and decorating a private chapel yeah. that he did out of his bed. Yeah. <laughs> pretty much. Now, he was fortunate at that time to be famous enough and wealthy enough to have assistance. Yeah. To do all the <laughs> if work. We could only all have that later in life. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, cut something out and hand it to an assistant and say, put that on the wall, no, a little bit to the left. <laughs> right. <laughs> so it gives me that encouragement, the hope that maintaining the health, maintaining my drive, I'll be able to continue to create into my 80s. Yeah. Of if course. not for. Yeah. Yeah. Until the last days, I'm sorry. <laughs> Still be making Ooh, things. Wait. So I guess the big message is it doesn't matter how old you are, just keep going. <laughs> Right, right. It also has a message for younger people, too. And that is that you can innovate at any age. Right. When you're younger, you can switch over to something else. I think of Goya, who in his later life, after he was a court painter, started doing a lot of etchings and did some wonderful, wonderful etchings about war and pestilence. Yeah. Now, not the Some most positive times. of subjects. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They are actually very dark. But again, it's innovative new techniques that he discovered changed his viewpoint. And I would tell that to anybody who's stuck at any age, even if they're not stuck, you know, take a look around. You have an idea, you want to express it. Is what you're doing now, oil painting or watercolor, is that the best way to express that idea that you have, that concept? Yeah, yeah. One of the things that I was thinking about change and changing focus, changing artistic focus, if I were to give anybody suggestions or if if anybody asked me what I thought about something, my opinions, I would first tell them, don't take anybody's opinions. <laughs> That's the first thing well, I tell them. Yeah. <laughs> first thing, opinions. just just ignore me. <laughs> <laughs> the next thing I tell them, if they persevered, was uh, to be true to yourself. Of course, that's an old adage, and sure. but by that I mean change for whatever reason you want to change. Yeah, but for your own reasons. Is that what you're saying? Right. Yeah. Yeah, but beware the implications of making that change uh, as much as you possibly can. You know, changing materials can affect the quantity of your output. True. If I went and changed to, uh, I don't know, uh, welding to create my work, (laughs) my output's going to get a lot less. Also, there'd be a learning curve when you change. Right. So don't expect to be putting out your best work necessarily. Plan for something like that. Know that that's going to happen when you make the change. Also, if you change venues, changing venues is going to affect your exposure and in turn affect sales. Yeah. Now, with putting your work online, that may help someone. Right. But then you're facing other problems about your work online and how you accept payments, how you're going to make letting go of your work safer for you as well as the person buying it. Yeah, yeah. And that's the thing these days. You don't get to have that personal relationship with your customers if you're doing things online. Yeah. Yeah. Now, the commissions that I had, sometimes I met the customers. Sometimes it's just by phone or by email. In all but one, I think lately this year, people have actually seen my work firsthand. Not the particular piece I did for them, right. but have been to a show or something like right. that and seen the work. Right. And I also sell through Saatchi Art online. Oh, right. Mm-hmm. And they're more reputable, obviously, but people 
who buy through that don't get to see the work necessarily firsthand. Right. And with polymer clay, particularly the textural stuff that I do, it's a whole different ballgame when you actually see the piece. In person, yeah. Yeah, there's dust on it. <laughs> there's dust on it. The colors come across differently. The, oh, the, yeah. The way it moves That's... when you move. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Did you teach art? My major in college was art education. And in my sophomore year in college, I had to do some student teaching. There's a whole long story about student teaching in this small Catholic school that concerns me being sent to the principal office as a teacher. As a teacher. <laughs> oh, and, I see why that's and, not your career, huh? <laughs> I did teach at a private school called Berkeley Corporation in Pennsylvania. I taught computer graphics there. And I have also taught individual art classes. The other thing about teaching that stopped me was I had a very difficult time talking about my artwork to the point where I could not go into a gallery and show my work. Doesn't seem it now. Yeah, no. <laughs> That's not <laughs> the joy I know. <laughs> <laughs> because I would freeze. In fact, sometimes my wife would go with me and get the ball rolling. And then I'd answer questions. Yeah. So I said to myself after I retired that I got to do something about this. What am I going to do? I got to talk about my work. You know, how else am I going to get in galleries or in shows or yeah. even write about my work? You know. Yeah. So I went into analysis, three years worth of analysis on why I didn't do it. And it was a very, very valuable three years that I did that analysis. I bet. And if you had known me before, you would be surprised <laughs> that I can talk now. I had to get free of that clamming up because I wanted to talk about the work. I wanted to talk like we're doing, talk about other people's work, you know, yeah. and share information. But I just couldn't do it. Another thing that helped me is what we're doing right now. It's easier for me to do it online even if we're one to one like this, yeah. then it would be do it face to face. Okay. But yeah. with the right people, and, and I'm much better now, I'm not totally there. <laughs> but with the right people, I can do it face to face yeah. very easily. I think that's not uncommon for artists to have a difficult time discussing their work. They don't work verbally for the most part. And so there's that. Right. And so you're translating what you're doing in your mind visually into words. And that can be difficult if that's not a medium that you're familiar with. And so what did you do to help you become more comfortable with talking about your work? Well, one of the things that uh, I was advised to do was I was creating a poster to sell locally. Mm -hmm. This is different than my artwork. Yeah. For some extra money, I've created these posters. And what my analyst told me to do was make it a point to go to different stores in the area, you know, tourist stores, stores that sell this type of work and talk about it and just go and, you know, even if you can't talk, to drop it off, uh -huh. to say something about it and drop it off. So that was a big turn for me because it wasn't about my artwork per se. It was some illustration work that I did uh -huh. that I wanted to sell. So it wasn't as deep in me that okay. I had to, uh -huh. you know, release and talk about. And I did that. And that was very helpful. And I ended up 
with two places selling my posters. Oh, that's great. Because I pushed myself. They were baby steps, really. Yes. Yeah, exactly. So that was one of the things that I did. Yeah. And the other, of course, was to do what I did with us now, and that was to write things down. Yeah. Since you were kind enough to give me the questions, I was able to write all the answers. And as soon as I did that, Sage, I felt so much better, yeah. so much easier, because then I said, well, the worst that could happen is I'd read every single answer off <laughs> on the page. That's not Nobody's how it goes on my podcast, nope. <laughs> <laughs> I know. And then when we were talking, and actually, I think it was your last podcast that I listened to with your husband. You were talking about you know, the back and forth about audience mm -hmm. and stuff like yeah. that. And that was really helpful to yeah. me, too. Yeah. But it can be unnerving doing something that's not familiar. You know, I mean, podcasting in and of itself was very strange for me to do because, I mean, I identify as a writer and an artist, right? But I'm not an auditory person. Oh, and so I had to right. learn all this equipment and learn the software. It's not like I hadn't worked with it before for various reasons for video and this mm -hmm. and that. But as it turns out, it's the same thing. I mean, as a writer, and you've written fiction as well, one of the big things is you want to hear people's stories. And I think as artists, a lot of us are looking for story, even if we don't call it story, in what we see out in the world. And so that's basically what we're doing here. I'm trying to pull story out of you. I'm trying to have, make a connection that we can exchange stories. And that ends up being the basis for the conversation and ends up being the basis, I think, for a lot of artwork that we find story, find something that engages us and interests us. And then we try to translate it in our minds into something visual. But it may not be with words, but we're basically doing the same thing. And that's at least my perspective from doing this now. So when you're eliciting stories, would you use some of the same methods that you use for your own work? You know, within the story that you write, would you use those same methods in your podcast? You know, it's no, I, I think it's a little different because it's coming from the other direction, right? So I'm trying to get you to tell me a story versus what I'm doing in my head. It's handing me something. It's very passive on my end, really. I'm just asking questions. And how did this become about you questioning me on this podcast? <laughs> <laughs> Wait a minute. Well, got, I got interested. Enough about me. <laughs> <laughs> So I guess that's another thing that you can do, too. Like, you just tried to turn the tables on me and ask me a bunch of questions. <laughs> oh, I got to talk to my analyst about that. <laughs> so, well, I mean, that's another way of approaching it, I think, is if you're asking questions as well. You know, I mean, more people want to talk about themselves more than they want to listen a lot of the times. And that's not necessarily a negative comment. It's just natural. We have all these stories. We have these things in our heads that we want to get out. It's also why we're artists, right? We have things in our heads we want to get out. So I think if you have a hard time talking about your artwork, maybe one of the approaches could be asking questions. I don't know. Have you have you tried that as a as an approach to get more comfortable about talking about your artwork? No, but I like the idea. Yeah. It seems very natural for you <laughs> to be asking well, the questions. I, I do like the back and forth. Uh -huh, and, right. And well, you know, I've been interviewed before and I tend to after the main thrust and everything is done, I, I'm interested in yeah. what you do too. Of yeah. <laughs> Well, thanks. Yeah. But I wanted to ask you, you brought up something that was I thought was really cool last time we talked about the fact that you let people come into your studio while you're working, which oh, I would yeah. have a really hard time doing. I get too easily distracted if there's other people around. But you actually like having people in your studio. Oh, sure. Yeah. How did that come about? 
maybe because people don't last long in the studio. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> and then it's easy to have them in there. When I was going to school on the Jersey Shore, I would take my sketchbook out and just sketch wherever I was on the beach, on the boardwalk, you know, any place in the San Diego area I was. And people would come by and look, yeah, you know, and yeah. watch me. Some people would start asking questions. So it became very natural for me to work and talk to people, Yeah, you know, through those times. I did it in New Zealand. Whenever I vacationed New Zealand, my sketchbook was always with me. Yeah. So I would think that anybody who has done any plain air work. Yeah. Am I pronouncing that right? Plain air? I think it's on plein air. Sorry. No, no. Uh, <laughs> but anybody who does that has to experience that, you know what yeah. I mean? Yeah, yeah. And I would think that most people are at least polite about answering questions while they're working. Right. But so I've had that experience in the past. When I worked in my two-car garage in Virginia, oftentimes I'd have both doors up. Ah. Uh, and if the doors were open, sure, I would, I would yeah, talk. Come on them. in. Yeah. yeah. Now, it wasn't always very uh, practical or, pr or productive <laughs> right. because of that. Yeah. But I think it's valuable to do what I'm doing now, exchanging information with people yeah. about art, about what I do, and not even necessarily about me, but that art gets done and it's not anything magical or anything else like that. Uh -huh. It's a hands-on carving tool, saw, paintbrush type of thing. Right. I was going to ask you, how do you get people into your studio? <laughs> hey, bowls of candy out there. <laughs> Come on well, in, I have cookies. <laughs> no, sign, no sign outside or anything. It's just that if I, if I have visitors, uh -huh. well, for one thing, I'm in the studio practically all day. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So if a neighbor comes by where we have guests or something like this, the door is open. There you go. I'll come in. Yeah. Have a seat. Let's talk. You know, whatever. Yeah. And sometimes I'll keep working. Sometimes I won't. Yeah. Like my girls are used to that uh, when they're over, you know, if it's early in the morning and we're not going anyplace special or whatever the case, come in the studio and sit. Yeah. Yeah. And, and we'll talk then. And then what, when my grandson comes over, He'll take over the the work table. Yeah, he'll. I'll get the play doh out for him. Yeah, and we'll do play doh things all the time. Or else he likes to draw on the Wacom tablet too. Oh yeah, yeah. So yeah, I just thought like the whole idea of having somebody in your studio for those of you who have issues with concentrating because it is so isolating. That's one of the things if you can invite somebody in. And I do know some people who actually will invite people to be online while they work. Like Kind of like when you all get together for the International Polymer Clay Association chats, a lot of you are working, and then everybody's online just talking. So, oh, yeah. so those are just options to keep yourself from being so isolated. I mean, one of the reasons this podcast is done the way it is, kind of like a chat and more conversational, is so that you can listen to it while you're in the studio. Maybe you feel like you're more part of a conversation and not quite so alone in what you're doing. So, I definitely listen to your podcast while I'm working. As well as other art podcasts. Yeah, it helps, I think, for me to focus, to have some kind of input from the outside world while you're working. All right, let's go ahead. We've, we've hit on a lot of stuff, but let's ask some of the really what I think are core questions for all the artists that I bring on. Number one, how do you feed your muse? 
Well, one thing generally, I'll see something outside of my car window or if I'm walking and if I like it, whatever it is, I'll stop and I'll take a photo. And I don't always use the photos, uh, you know, just like anything like sketches, you may come back to them right. and they're not quite right. Right. So th- that's one thing. I belong to maybe seven or eight different art organizations, oh, wow. both in this area and in D.C., that I continuously get information from, from both their websites and mailings. And then when I'm in the area, I'll go visit those organizations mm-hmm. and museums. I subscribe to gallery newsletters, galleries that I like the work that's in them. I make sure I subscribe to them so that when I sit down in the morning and I check my email, they'll come up and I'll either read them fully or I'll just look at the pictures. Yeah. Read books like right. The Last Light, like I'm yeah. reading now. Most of the books I read are nonfiction and they concern art. Yeah. And also TV. There's a couple of great TV shows on PBS, and one is Art 21 and Craft in America. Both of those are really fun to watch. Yeah. So lots of media, and it sounds like just trying to get a lot of information and constantly keep art on the top of the mind. Do you have any like newer novel experiences? Anything that you've done recently that like might be an interesting thing to share for listeners about, you know, that helps feed your muse? I've been working primarily in the last shows only with polymer. Mm-hmm. And with these newer ideas I have, uh, they're going to incorporate other materials with the polymer. Oh, okay. It's a little bit more of a challenge because there's more construction. It's like if you're doing jewelry, you've got to concern yourself with the backing, with pins, with all that sort of the stuff. Functionality. Yes, yeah. this is a little bit different. I've done it in the past, and I have to do it with these maybe about four or five ideas that I have gestating. Yeah. It sounds like most all of your experiences, your muse feeding is from art, about art, very art focused. Yeah, absolutely. So I like to end the podcast talking about success because I think it's just such a super important thing to keep in mind that success is an individual thing. So Joseph, what is your version of success? Well, it, success really depends on your aims, what your goals are. So set yourself up for a success or a failure by what your goals are. Yeah. My goals, it's a simple goal, and that's to be able to continue to create my work. It's just that simple. If I sell it, that's good. That's the business end of doing this. Uh, that's fine. The success of how the things I make sell, it's not me. Right. Uh, or right. if other people like my work, the, the work is successful in their eyes, which is good too. Yeah. You know, it's, it, that's got to be a little boost, thing. right? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. But success is for me to continue working. And that entails an awful lot, Sage, you know, because <laughs> again, I'm going to use the word that I've learned recently, septuagenarian. Septuagenarian. <laughs> I've learned recently. <laughs> Part of attaining that success is, is keeping healthy, basically, yes. so that you can continue, so that I can continue to create right. and do these things. Right. Absolutely. I am 100% with you. So, Well, that was great. Thank you so much, Joseph. That was a great talk and conversation, and thank you for interviewing me. <laughs> <laughs> On here. I have other questions, but I'll hold back now. <laughs> great. Well, thanks so much for joining. I really appreciate you coming on with me today. Thank you, Sage. I had a great time. 
And if you had a great time as well, if you want to know more about Joseph's work, you can find him, as mentioned, at ParadiseStudios.com. He also is on Facebook and Instagram and YouTube, all under Joseph Barbaccia, the last name spelled B-A-R-B-A-C-C-I-A, which you could see in the episode title, <laughs> I suppose. He also sells his work on Saatchi Art. I also listed his books and his solo show and all of the links I just mentioned in the show notes. So take a look at those. You can link straight through there. Well, I hope you enjoyed that windy journey through Joe's thoughts on change, the change in our lives as artists. It's just kind of a dipping of the toes in the water thing. So if any part of that conversation really made an impression on you, it might be time to dive in and really explore what changes you have going on or are coming up ahead of you. Next week's episode may actually help with that. It's going to be about downtime the kind that refuels you and allows you to figure out these kinds of things. But it's probably not the kind of downtime that comes to mind. I have a kind of essential but not often considered view on the necessary kind of downtime for creatives, but it's backed by studies and it's something both Brett and I have been working on for a while now and we can really attest to its usefulness. So you can start thinking about the changes in your life that need further exploration. And next week, I'll give you some ideas about how to give yourself the space and mental energy to do the work that needs doing. In the meantime, don't forget to send me your comments and stories at the sagearts.com website. Seek those donation buttons on the homepage if you're able to give back or buy us some stickers or publications at 10thmusearts.com. That's 10th spelled out T-E-N-T-H. Don't forget to hit the follow button on your podcast player so you don't miss an episode and follow on social media on Facebook or Instagram, both under the Sage Arts podcast, all one word. If you want to help spread the word, hit the share button on those posts or you're welcome to grab the images and repost them so other creatives that might be needing this kind of conversation can better find the podcast. Okay, well, I'm running off to feed my muse this weekend. We're going to drive up the coast a little ways. I'm super excited about the photo opportunities because the wildflowers are just mad out here in California, just all the rain. So much is growing that doesn't usually come out in any kind of quantity and it's just crazy. So I'm looking forward to that. Hopefully you'll get out and feed your muse this weekend or this week as spring has sprung everywhere or fall is falling if you're down under. But these seasons of change, they're just such perfect backdrops as you ponder the ideas that you heard today. So until next time, keep feeding your muse, be true to your weirdness, and I'll chat with you next week on the Sage Arts Podcast. <laughs>